0: And while you're opening to Luke chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 30. We're in the Summer in Galilee series, all the events that happen in our Lord and Savior up in the Galilee region, northern Israel. While we're opening up, let me tell you what the Puritans used to say. They used to say that God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. Let me say that again, because that kind of sets the tone for what we're about to look at. God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. And Jesus did preach a great deal. In fact, it was his primary ministry on earth. Does this surprise you what Mark tells us in chapter 1, verse 38? Jesus is speaking. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. Now, here's the key part. Underline it in your Bibles if you get over to there. For that is why I came out. That's why I came out of heaven to earth was to preach. So if I were you, I would get to that verse in Mark chapter 1, verse 38. I would underline that because that really helps you understand. Here's the primary, the primary purpose for Jesus and his ministry. He came to preach. Now we're going to look at one of his early sermons that he preached in his own hometown of Nazareth. And I hope you're there, Luke chapter 4. Let's read along while I read out loud, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now in your mind, in your imagination, because I don't have a picture of it up on the screen... I want you to picture Israel like a map during the days of Jesus. There was a northern part of Israel, that's Galilee. There was a middle part in the land of Israel called Samaria. And then there's a bottom part called Judea, the southern part, Bethlehem, where he was born, but where he was raised was Nazareth. And it's about 80 miles, maybe 75, from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem. So if you can kind of get that in your mind, you know now you're way up north where the Sea of Galilee is. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles north to south, kind of in the shape of an egg. And it's about seven and a half miles east to west. Pretty big lake, actually, freshwater lake. If you took the very southern tip of the Sea of Galilee and you hang a left as you're looking at the map, you go west, 14 miles, you're going to get to Nazareth. So now you know where Nazareth is. Probably a very small town, though some people think it was a little bigger than we think. But I think it was a small town. And he is back to his hometown. And the rest of verse 16 says, "...and as was his custom..." Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, this is actually fairly interesting, and I would think a little bit convicting to the modern American church. Look at what he says. In fact, can I encourage you to maybe underline one word, custom, whatever your translation has for it, and as was his custom, meaning he worshipped regularly at the synagogue, not because... He'd feel guilty if he didn't go, but because he had an overflowing desire to worship God along with his people. Is that not why we ought to go to church? It's not that, you know what, I'm going to feel horrible if I skip. Oh, I really don't want to go but I'm supposed to go, I'm so tired, it's been a hard weekend, and there's that war that erupts inside of you, and there's guilt that motivates you to finally go, perhaps. Listen, that's not the right reason to go to church. The right reason to go to church is because you love God so much and his people so much that you want to worship him together. And you kind of want to linger afterwards because when God's Spirit, I've seen it for 28 years of ministry, when God's Spirit really works in your heart, you really don't want to leave very quickly. If it was the Sabbath day for Jesus, it was church day for Jesus. So into the synagogue he went. Now, let me just belabor that for just another moment, if you would. And I hope you can bear up under this. This is a pastoral admonition for you. Attendance in the American church is all over the map. If you've read any studies, it's in decline in some places. Gladly makes me extremely happy. It's in decline with liberal churches. I really don't know any liberal churches that are growing I hope they continue to decline. Revelation says in some of the, one of the uh, letters to one of the churches that he will remove his lamp. His lamp is his presence. So in liberal churches, thank you, Jesus. Remove yourself from them. Let them close their doors. They're peddling a graceless, gospel-less message. It won't change anybody's life. But however... Attendance figures vacillate even in gospel preaching churches, and Cornerstone is no exception. So I would ask that you take it seriously, that it was his custom, be at church. Not because Pastor Tim says so, not because you're going to feel guilty if you're not. Because, listen, if you're not, examine your heart. Why aren't you regularly worshiping God with his people? There should be and there ought to be and by God's grace or can be in your heart, and in my heart, a desire that if it's going to be a time for church, my heart wants to be there. Why? Because why would I not want a foretaste of what we're going to have for eternity? In the perfect presence of God and each other. Except there in eternity, you won't be with anybody that you kind of don't like. You're going to like everybody. You're going to enjoy everybody. And we get to practice that even now. So on this particular Sabbath, the ruler of the synagogue, that was the actual official title, invites this growingly popular teacher to preach. And synagogues, did you know this? Synagogues all over Israel, by the way, they do this today. This is still true in present-day Jewish synagogues. They stayed on the same rhythm Throughout the year, if one synagogue was in this part of the Mosaic Law, first five books of the Bible, then every synagogue was on the same part of the Mosaic Law. And they would divide it into 54 sections. And they would take one section each week. And they would do the same with the books of the prophets. They were read the same exact way. And it was a tradition that when the synagogue ruler invited you to come read... ...you would come up and you would read a minimum of three verses. And then you would explain them. That's called the sermon. You would preach. But Jesus broke this tradition... He didn't read three verses. He actually, he, actually, he actually broke that tradition. He read less than even two verses. And that was enough. That was what he wanted to preach on. In verse 17, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. It, in our books, in our Bibles, it's chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. Actually, a little less than the first two verses. Now, you might be interested in this. Hebrew reads from the right to the left. We read from the left to the right each sentence. And they would unroll the scroll with their left hand... They wrote the books of the Bible on long, long, yards-long parchments of paper. And they would glue or affix a wooden roller at each end that extended beyond the edges of the paper. And they would roll it together. You would unroll reading. You would unroll with your left hand as you were reading from right to left. And while you were reading, you would roll it up with your right hand. And this is what Jesus was doing Verse 20, the one invited would read, Jesus does, and then he sits down and he explained what was read. He begins to preach. And the passage that he chose from the Isaiah scroll, one of the most familiar, you may not know this by the way, so I got to actually make sure you do know this. This is actually more interestingly and important of a point than you might imagine. The passage that he reads, Isaiah 61, it's one of the most famous and familiar passages to the Jewish people. It prophesied the coming of the Messiah who would deliver them. They knew this passage by heart. In fact, I would tell you, I doubt there was anybody in that synagogue that had not memorized those two verses and more. They knew it really well. You, you need to know that for later in this message. And Jesus applies the prophecy of of Isaiah to himself. And he says that it's fulfilled in their hearing with him. He's saying this the Messianic age has begun with me. Why? Verse 18 For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. You got to get that personal pronoun. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. And I've been anointed by the Spirit of God. Now, if I were to quiz each of you as you were to leave this sanctuary, can you please tell me what the word anointed means? You might actually get this. You might not. So just in case you wouldn't, let me tell you what it is. This is very interesting. The word anointed in the Greek, which is this passage, is the same root word for Christ. Did you know that Christ is not the last name of Jesus? It's a title. It's not Tim Ackley, Jesus Christ. They didn't have last names. It was Jesus, son of Joseph. You're going to see that in the text. So Christ is the same filled out word as anointed... He's the anointed of God, the Messiah, the Christ. And to be anointed was to be given authority. This dates all the way back to the Egyptians. The Hittites did this. To be anointed was to be given authority to lead the king's people and to act as his representative. So if you were anointed, you were given authority and then you were sent to the people as his representative. And Jesus makes the claim in this synagogue, in this sermon, to be the one sent by God to be the king and savior to his people, and that he represents God, Yahweh, Lord, with full authority, and he's come to deliver his people. This is the dynamite stick that detonates in this sermon. This is why they're marveling. And notice who he was sent to in verse 18 He has anointed me. Everybody looking at their Bibles? To proclaim good news to who? To the poor. And then comes a subcategory of who the poor are. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So who are the poor? They're the captive, the blind, the oppressed. And his method of helping them, well, you might think he's going to open up a, a few classes on socialism He's going to start welfare programs. He's going to open up a clinic for the blind. That's not what he's doing. In fact, that's not at all. Look what he's doing. He's proclaiming good news. That word proclaim is the word for the person that was responsible to be the public crier of the town. If there's an emergency, somebody who's the public crier, the herald, is supposed to get up and alert the entire town. Jesus proclaims, he heralds, he's the public crier, the good news, which means he's preaching. And he's preaching to the poor, he's preaching to the captives, he's preaching about the Lord's favor. He's a messiah. He's come to help the poor. He's publicly crying out through preaching good news to the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed. And by the way, now you're a Jewish person in that synagogue, but you got to think like a Jewish person, not like an American. I mean, come on, let's take a little test. Again, rhetorical. You don't need to answer this. Just in your mind. Have you ever been in a prison? Have you ever been a captive Have you ever been blind? Have you ever been so poor you didn't know where your next meal was coming from? Some of you could answer possibly yes to some of those questions. But you got to think like a Jewish person. Because they are captives to Rome. This is not their freedom. They only have as much freedom as Rome would allow for them. And they hated their Roman captors. So this message, so far, the reading of Isaiah, the the promising that the Messiah has come, it's fulfilled in their presence. This is music to their ears. The taxes that they had to pay to Rome. They were exceedingly burdensome. It drove many of them to poverty. This is good news indeed. But, hugely, ready? Was Isaiah Or Jesus, meaning material poverty, or legal prisoners, or national oppression, or physical blindness. Now that's a question you actually have to answer. Because that wildly changes the direction of this passage. Are we talking about economic poverty, or is there something else that Jesus is intending? Now, let me tell you something that's been happening in the last two and a half decades. Chiefly here in America has been the social justice movement. And this message, and along with a lot of other ones, have been pressed through that theological framework of social justice. And those who align with that theological framework... ...see this message, they see the poor as being the vulnerable, the impoverished, those in jail, those physically suffering. And listen, I hope you hear this. To be really clear, all forms of poverty, all blindnesses, oppression and captivity, they are abhorrent to Jesus. He came to help the downtrodden, the hurting, and the poor... So, when he would see somebody begging at the gate, his heart lurched in, in compassion. When he would see a leper that nobody wanted to be around, his heart moved in compassion. But this sermon aims deeper. And before I even tell you where it's going into the root. That it's heading towards. Let me just tell you so that there's absolutely no possibility that you could misunderstand my words. It is true that the gospel speaks to the poor economically, and it speaks to those little children in Johns Hopkins, and it speaks to the beggars at the intersections of our towns. It speaks to those whose children are dying. It speaks to all forms of suffering. And the church must rise up. We must be salt and light in the world. We've got to stand against evil and darkness. We must labor for those in need. There is absolutely zero controversy in that statement. The Bible is unequivocally clear. But the sermon that Jesus is preaching goes way deeper to the root and the problem of all social justice, all suffering, to the root that says this we live in a world broken by sin. Paul said that Christ Jesus came into this world to save who? The economically poor to get them rich? The physically blind to open their eyes the lame that they can walk was that his chief reason for coming into this world the answer is no those were the residual effects of a god who irresistibly loves the sufferer when he healed them but he came into this world to save sinners. So his gospel that he is heralding, his good news, is for those who realize the poverty of their sinful moral condition. His good news is for those caught up in the bondage to their own spiritual flesh. His good news is for those who are stumbling around in this darkness of this world, groping blind, Isaiah says, unable to find the light of truth. His good news is for for those who are caught in the grip of the devil, snared, By the prince of the air. His gospel is a message of grace. And it was preaching this. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Meaning God had come to give freedom to the spiritual poor. Why? Because of his grace. He's preaching to those who have hit the bottom. They are out of options. They have no more places to turn. Their hearts are ready to believe in him. And the Son of God is preaching what can open their eyes to the truth. In fact, the greatest sermon ever preached on this planet was the Sermon of Jesus Christ, and he started like this: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, have you heard what we've been saying so far? He's quoting this passage from Isaiah 61. Doesn't quite get two full verses of it. Breaks the tradition for a reason. You'll see it in a moment. And what he's saying is the the Messiah that's prophesied by Isaiah has come. It's me. I have fulfilled it in your presence today. Now is the day of the Lord's favor. I am preaching good news to the poor. Who are the poor? The blind, the captive, the oppressed. Those who are locked into the sinfulness of their heart and desperately want freedom. He says, I can open your eyes. Are the worshipers of that synagogue in that little town, are they poor in spirit? And look at verse 22. So far, it seems maybe they are. All spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Listen, as as far as I know, all he's done so far is read Isaiah. But that's what the Word of God does. When it's really working in our hearts, you feel like you're burning inside. It gives you joy that the Word of God is being preached. And you can hear a pin drop during that message, for they were amazed. They didn't know that this hometown kid... All grown up could speak that well with this confidence, this grace. Their hearts were ringing. Their hearts were singing. It's a living word of God. Preach the written word of God. And who wouldn't love this sermon, especially one of grace, the favor of God to struggling people. Now, I want you to look at me for a moment. So what on earth happens that you could go from verse 22 and all spoke well of him To verse 28, by the end of church, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What happened to make them change? What made them so angry that they would actually try and kill this man that they've known since he was a kid? I'm going to give you four reasons they went from gladness to wrath. And I'm wondering... How much they resonate with any of us. Ready? Here's the first. They wouldn't believe because of his familiarity. They wouldn't believe because of his familiarity. And they said, verse 22 Is this not, is not this Joseph's son? The more they talked, the more they discussed. And by the way, I think they might have been whispering during the preaching. Something that drives me nuts, but I guess it didn't bother Jesus. They're whispering, I think, they're talking, they're going, wow, who, who knew that this guy could preach? This is the first time he's preached in Nazareth. And the more they talked and discussed, the more they realized the audacity of someone that they know claiming to be the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. There was no confusion, no ambiguity in them, that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. They were hearing him clearly. In fact, three years later, he's now nailed to the cross. I'm going forward you three years. And Luke tells us in chapter 23, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at Jesus. He's crucified, and they're saying to him, they're yelling up to him, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, if he's the anointed, the Messiah, the deliverer, the chosen one, they knew what his claim was, there's no confusion on this. We know you, they're saying in that synagogue. You are Joseph's son. And by the way, weren't there rumors that he got your mom pregnant before they were even married? I imagine this was probably going on. In fact, we know it was later, John 8 says, they were going to bring out that accusation later. They said, we were not born of sexual immorality. That was a jab at Jesus. You were the illegitimate child of Joseph and Mary. And now you're claiming to be the Messiah? Well, we know the truth, and Mary was pregnant because God divinely caused it to be, not Joseph. Yet for this congregation, familiarity would breed contempt. They could not believe, they would not believe because of his familiarity. Now, I've got to ask you briefly, and I'm going to regather back, circle back to this at the end. Is Jesus so familiar to you that you're not awestruck anymore by him? Do you know that's so easy to happen in my life and in your life? In fact, let me just lay it out there. You ready? When's the last time you were so amazed that Jesus had dropped you to your face in prayer? I mean, that did happen over and over in the Gospels, right? People would come up to Jesus and they would have their eyes open and they would fall at his feet, clinging to him. When's the last time that you fell to your feet because of the movement of the Spirit of God to open your eyes to the glory, the grandeur, the beauty of Jesus? And I'm going to guess that for most of us, it's probably been years. See, familiarity can breed contempt in all of us. That wasn't the only problem. It goes on. They wouldn't believe because of their expectations. I told you earlier that it was a Jewish custom to read no less than three verses in the synagogue. And that Jesus broke that custom. And he did so at a very critical part of Isaiah 61. When you get to verse 2. He ended his reading in verse 2 with, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he stops. But the very next part of that verse goes in the day of the vengeance of our God. So you've got to get inside of the Jewish mind because this is certainly what the Jewish worshiper was resonating with. Is he going to bring us to the day of the vengeance of our God? Because the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to usher in God's favor to them and bring God's vengeance to the Gentiles. His wrath would come, especially against their Roman captors. You see, by ending where he did, Jesus is saying it is time now for God's grace, it's not yet time for his judgment. And I wonder if we inwardly long for God to punish those who hurt us, who offend us, who do things against us, even politically on Facebook, or cutting you off on the road, or at work scheming to get a leg up over you to get the promotion so you don't. Do you have the favor of God towards them? Or are you hoping secretly, if you wouldn't be so brave to pray for it, that God would bring his punishment and his judgment? What is your attitude towards those who are transitioning to an opposite gender? What is your mindset towards those who are gay? Towards those who are very vocal within a political party that you're not in? See, you might realize when you get really raw and real with yourself and when I get raw and real with myself, we're not that different from these Jewish worshipers. We want God's favor for us, but we certainly want his wrath for our enemies. They had the wrong expectations. The day of the vengeance of our God will one day come ...against those who will not repent, who perpetrate evil. And yes, we stand against evil in the power of the gospel. The church ought to be a refuge and a bastion against evil... It ought to be against the bulwarks, not movable against evil, where you can come in and have a time of rest for our weariness of fighting this battle and that we actually march out into the darkness and do something. That's why we're planting a campus up in the Slate belt. We're not sitting on our laurels. We're not waiting for the church to come to us. That's foreign to the gospel. We're going to the darkness. We're going to the unsaved. So yes, the day of vengeance of our God will one day come, but that is not today. Listen, I want you to hear me. Today is the year of the Lord's favor, and salvation can still be found by any believing sinner. So let's promote his grace, and let's preach his favor. And that's what Jesus was doing, but they had the wrong expectations. Number three, they wouldn't believe because of their hardened hearts. And he says to them, verse 23, doubtless you're going to quote to me this proverb physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, I read once that the skeptic philosopher Bertrand Russell, the guy was brilliant. He was once asked a question publicly. What would you do, Bertrand, if you end up meeting God at the final judgment? You know what his answer was? And I'm going to quote it. His answer to God, he said, will be, Not enough evidence, Lord. Not enough evidence. The synagogue congregation, they're muttering, they're thinking to each other and themselves, If you're going to claim to be our Messiah, then prove it with miracles right now. By the way, this is a problem for the Jewish people. Paul actually later identified this in Corinthians. I'm going to quote it Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. What turned on the Jew was the miracle. What got the Gentile going, the Greek going, was wise wisdom from the philosophers. But the faithless demand would be expressed again years later while, again, he was being crucified. Luke chapter 23, and the people stood by watching. And again, the rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is a Christ of God, his chosen one. So again, same verse I read earlier, they're demanding a sign. If you're really the Christ, get yourself off the cross. (coughs) The people in that synagogue weren't Demanding miracles so they could overcome unbelief. Now hear this. They were demanding miracles because they would not believe. They weren't demanding miracles so that they could overcome unbelief. They were demanding them because they would not believe. Listen, every friend of yours and every family member that ever tells you that if God would do something miraculous in my life, I would believe. That is an absolute patent lie. They don't know it's a lie, they're deceived. The problem is not the lack of God demonstrating himself. The problem is he's demonstrating himself constantly. They will not believe. Chuck Swindoll writes, when people came to Jesus looking for a reason to reject him, he gave them all they hoped to find. And it leads us to our final reason ...that they could go from verse 22 to verse 28. They wouldn't believe because of their self-righteousness. Verse 25, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah... ...when the heavens were shut up three years and six months... ...and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. To a woman who was a widow... And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And the people in that congregation, listen, you do need to know this. They were an incredibly religious group. They attended church regularly. They said their prayers. They observed the law. They even belonged ethnically, nationally to Israel with all these promises and benefits. And all of those factors blinded them to their own spiritual poverty, their captivity to sin, their blindness, and their oppression from the devil. You know, years ago I got up to speak at a function that we were doing. We had about 150 people here, and I got up to do the introduction, and we took a break, and everybody greeted each other, and I came down off the stairs and One of the guys said to me, X, Y, Z. I said, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. He says, X, Y, Z. Okay, very good, thank you. Can you please tell me what that is? He says, your zipper's down. (laughs) I am so thankful for that man. Because I would have gone on and on and on, not knowing that my zipper was down. Listen, we need God to open your eyes to see that your zipper's down inwardly. Do you understand that? That we're sinners, and you can't see that you're a sinner in your own power. God must show you, but they were blinded in that synagogue to their own spiritual poverty. So here's what Jesus does. He's brilliant, and this really adds the fuel to the fire. He gives two examples from the Old Testament. One of them's a poor widow outside of Israel who lived during a severe drought, and her flour and her oil was down to one final meal. She's going to die. She's got a little boy. She's going to make one more meal. They're going to share it, and she plans on dying. That's how severe this drought was. But here comes the prophet Elijah, whom God had sent to her. And he asks her. She meets him at the gate of the city. She's trying to find sticks to light a fire to make this cake of bread. And Elijah has the audacity to say, go back Make your bread, bring me some, and then you and your son eat what's left over him. And that's audacious. She did. She did. That's faith. And God supernaturally supplied for her a pagan. She's from a town where the worship of Baal was coming from. With the queen of Israel, Jezebel's hometown. Her father was the king of Sidon. And yet God sends Elijah, his prophet, to a widow from that pagan city. And he supplies her with oil and flour for the rest of the drought. And then he talks about Naaman, a leper from Syria, which was an enemy of Israel. They were on, on and off war enemies, Israel and Syria. And Naaman came to the prophet Elisha. And he asks him to be healed of leprosy. And Elisha tells him, listen to this, Elisha tells him, go dip in the Jordan, to a muddy little river, seven times. And at first Naaman refuses, and then in encouragement, the encouragement of a servant, he says, all right, I will. He obeys God, God heals him, an outsider of Israel who's from an enemy country. Now I want you to hear this. In both cases, they were foreigners to Israel. In both cases, they believed without seeing. Do you see why he brought them in? Show us miracles that we could see and believe. And Jesus says, Why do you need that when foreigners, exempt from Israel, outside of Israel's blessings, believed without seeing? That's what faith is that leads to salvation. And you're not saved. That was the message he's getting to these synagogue worshipers. And they got that message. By the way, don't think for a moment they were a little confused at what he was saying. Because they exploded in anger, leading him to the limestone cliffs of Nazareth with the intention of throwing him off the edge. That's how they stone people, usually. They would throw you off a small cliff, and then they would drop boulders on you and rocks on you to kill you. That's how they stone people. And they tried to do that with him, but he miraculously slipped from their midst. And as far as we know, he never preached there again. In fact, Mark, in his gospel, lets us in on what Jesus was thinking. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. All right, so I've got three minutes left. Maybe you found this interesting. I know I did when I was studying it, preparing it. But if it doesn't change your life, then what on earth was it really worth So let me ask you, are you poor in spirit? Your answer might be Christian. Well, I used to be, but now I've received the blessings of the Lord. Listen, if you're still not poor in spirit, then you become self-sufficient. And God only adds in a little bit to get you over the top of what you need each day. Are you poor in spirit? Do you feel, do you even know that you're like Adam and Eve, naked and ashamed before the searing holiness of God if the blood of Jesus does not cover you? Do you know that you are helpless in your sin with no way of delivering yourself? Now, I know you know that, most of you, theologically, that you'll never get to heaven in your own merit, on your own effort. I'm not talking about that grandiose of a scheme. I'm talking about every single day. Do you know that you cannot glorify God any day without the supreme dependence on Jesus Christ? Now I'm going to tell you, most Christians forget that. And I struggle with it as well. We're so self-sufficient. But do you believe and do you trust that God loves you and made a way for you to be saved from your sins by sending Jesus, his son, the Messiah, to sacrifice his life on the cross? Do you know that Christ has secured your salvation and he offers it to you, but you must believe Or has the familiarity with that message blinded you? Have your own expectations of what Jesus ought to do, your own demands made you unwilling to believe? Do you refuse to believe even though your heart has cried out to believe? Do you refuse to believe because you cannot believe that you're really that much in need of saving? Now, friends, you may be in your synagogue of church every single week, and suddenly the Lord will visit you. And he will proclaim the good news that you are poor, blind, captive, and oppressed. And he will whisper into your soul that he can save you, and that you still have a choice because it's the year of God's favor. And in that moment, you've got an option. You can either fall at his feet and confess your sins and give your life to him in faith, or you can drive him out of your life to the cliffs of Nazareth and try to throw him over and get his voice out of your head. My plea is that you will believe on Jesus, the anointed one, who came to save your soul for eternity. Amen. Let's pray.